I have to echo what Blake said. It's very hard to follow up a scripture like Romans 1 with anything. Uh, and we would never end the service on Romans 1 because the good news has to triumph out after that. If you end it, if the whole gospel was Romans 1, uh, you'd want to go home and, and end it all. But Paul's serious about that stuff. There's a real problem. You know, that long list, these people are ruthless and heartless and godless, and they invent new ways of doing evil. It's a real problem that Paul is addressing. Luckily, grace ends up as the winner in Romans. Grace ends up as the winner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at a little foretaste of that this morning in Romans chapter 3, 21, and we're going to go through uh, 26, 3, 21 through 26, on, on page 1114 in your sanctuary Bible. Uh, just a few words of introduction about this. Again, we're going to kind of look a little bit more about this question of the law. How does the law function? We talked about it a little bit last week, and the law is is there as God's way of ordering our society, the civil use of the law, so that it's safe to walk around on the street without fear. That's a great thing. That's the law that gives us freedom. But the, the law also has a spiritual use. It drives us to Christ because it makes us realize that we are truly godless, heartless, ruthless people who are constantly confusing the creation with the creator. That's our biggest problem, is that we worship ourselves, or we worship things, or we worship other people, or we worship this world in all of its beauty and all of its complexity and grandeur and its technological prowess, and we can look at all that and we can put all our faith in that and ignore the most powerful being in the universe who actually set that all in motion with his mighty power, who also then has a plan for dealing with our sin a plan that's wrapped up in the ministry of his son, Jesus Christ. So with that introduction, let's look at Romans 3, 21. The good news following Romans chapter 1. But now, and if you want to just say the word but, you know, if you, if you, use the word, you have to use the word uh, but very carefully because it can, it can kind of negate anything that came before it, which is good in this case. So if you want to put Romans 3 at the end of chapter 1, the but here can negate, actually it doesn't, but think of it this way, it negates this huge problem of human sin and its confusion about creator and creation. If you were to say, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, 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 great, end it with I'm sorry. But if you say, I'm sorry, but, the but negates the sorry, and it means you're not sorry. So don't ever apologize with I'm sorry, but. If you apologize, just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Done. That, and have you, ever received, have you ever received an apology as, I'm sorry, but? Felt great, didn't it? It's, that's not an apology. You're justifying yourself now. Don't bother. I was worse, I'm worse off now than when you started, right? But here's a good but. There's a good but in this. Romans 3, 21. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. 
He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to go back to um, Sunday school. When you were a child, maybe all of our children are in Sunday school. Last week, I think they learned about the Ark of the Covenant. Is that correct, Sunday school teachers? Correct? Yeah. Last week, they learned about the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that golden box? Uh, if you've seen a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, it's a little more current. They actually did a pretty good job replicating what the Ark looked like. Anybody remember what was inside the Ark? I know Ona knows. Yeah, go ahead. The Ten Commandments were in there. Yes. The last one. Who has it? Did I see a hand over here? There was a golden jar of manna that somebody actually was able to preserve. Normally you can't preserve manna, but this golden jar had was hermetically sealed, perhaps. And so that was all in there. The, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, this golden jar of manna, in case you got hungry when you were in there in the Holy of Holies. And no, you wouldn't do that. Um, and I, when I was a kid, I always thought that the box was the important thing. But does anyone remember about the lid of the box? The lid is quite ornate. On the top of the box, on the lid, were these two angels, the seraphim, it's possible that they, two of their, they had six wings perhaps, and two of their wings they used to cover their eyes, and they were faced inward with their wings, and they were faced towards each other, except there was something imaginary in between them. And they would be, were covering their eyes, not because they were looking at each other, but they were covering their eyes because they were looking at the presence of God in that moment. And it says in the Old Testament that God himself in his presence would hover or sit upon the lid of the ark between those two angels. Uh, so you kind of imagine this, right? This golden box all shiny. Sometimes that top of the ark, that lid, is called the mercy seat. It's the place where God sat and Aaron and Moses would approach him. Um, and what I realize now is actually the lid of the box is more important than the box itself. What's inside the box is great, but what's on top of the box is everything. God is sitting there on top of the box. And they would do all sorts of things uh, to the top of the box. It, the box would be inside the tabernacle and the sort of the holy place there. And when God's presence was there, Aaron was deathly afraid of looking at it. So he had something called a censer. You'll still see a censer. We should have a censer in our church now. A censer is this little thing that gives off smoke. It gives off in, in smoke from incense, and it could give off quite a bit of thick smoke. I have something like it for my beekeeping. It's a, it's a smoker, and I use it to scare the bees away from me. But Aaron would crank up his censer to go in there because it needed to be so cloudy and smoky in there that he couldn't actually see the top of the ark the lid, the mercy seat, because that's where God was. But it had to be not smoky enough so that he could see what he was doing. Now I want you to imagine this. Uh, 
Aaron goes in, and on the Day of Atonement, he brings with him a bowl full of blood. And he puts his censer into high gear, and this confined space around the ark is filled with smoke. So much smoke that he can't quite see God, but enough smoke so that he can see the vague outlines of what he needs to do. He needs to take some of that blood and he needs to sprinkle it in front of the Ark of the Covenant as an atonement offering for sin. But then he also has to take some of it and smear it on the golden lid of the Ark and there make atonement for the sins of the people who were with him, the people who were not able to actually keep the commandments that God gave them. There's something about that that's both beautiful and terrifying and grotesque at the same time. Do you have anything that's really shiny in your house, like a platter, maybe made out of gold or copper or bronze or silver? Maybe it's a a silver tea set or coffee service set. I just inherited one from my mother. It's very shiny. It's beautiful. I can't imagine getting some goat's blood or sheep's blood and taking that and smearing it all over my mother's silver coffee cups and, and coffee, uh, what's the thing? The what? The pot, the coffee pot. Yeah, I can't think of that word right now. Well, some, there's another word for it that's kind of fancier than pot, but yes, carafe, there you go, the coffee, the coffee server. It's shiny. I wouldn't put blood all over that. Why would I do that? Why does God want blood smeared on his seat, on this shiny, beautiful, finely polished, burnished thing? Well, you remember, so uh, I got to hold on to this, all right? Hold on to this image of the ark and what happens in the whole of holies with Aaron because it's going to come back to us pretty soon here. Uh, But let's look at Romans 3. 21 and on. Um, Paul is now beginning to answer this question of our problem with the law. Our problem with God's wrath is clear from Romans 1. We are totally messed up people. We're worshiping all the wrong things. And when we worship all the wrong things, we get confused about all sorts of other things. And we start to do things in our flesh, in our createdness, that's in contradiction to God. And the confusion just continues to get more confusing. That's what he talks about where he says God gave them over to the depravity of their mind. It just keeps getting worse. So that's what sin looks like. And the law, for, decade, for, for millennia, the people of God had tried to use the law as a barricade or a rampart against this kind of behavior. And over and over and over again, they had found that it wasn't working for them. They knew the law, but they knew they couldn't keep it. Romans chapter 7, we saw last week. I know what I need to do, but I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do, but I keep doing it. I'm a wretched man. I can't stop myself. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Because of this, what happens next in Romans 3? The law we cannot keep, but the law will drive us to Christ. And the people he was writing this to somehow did have that notion, though, that if they kept the law, if they held on strong enough, if they kept, kept it in front of themselves all the time, if they made, if they kind of uh, rewarded themselves for keeping it, they would, they would be able to keep on top of it. 
it never worked out. So this is what uh, Paul says. There's a righteousness that comes from God, and it is what he says, apart from the law. The law will not, the law and the keeping of the law, as good as it is, will not be able to help you with this kind of righteousness that God will give you. And it, it, righteousness really comes only, and we read in Romans 3.22, only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you get it. Just as a note, that word righteousness, which we see a lot in the Bible, the word for that in, in um, Greek is dikaiosine, and it means to be in a right relationship with God. It's based on the Greek word for justice, for penal justice, actually, for this kind of justice that you would get as a result of going to a law court and having your crimes adjudicated or being set, uh, being declared innocent. So being dikaios, which is sort of the, the word for uh, justification or righteousness, means that you are ju- you're justified. You have no claim against you. You have no, uh, there are no outstanding tickets. There's not a warrant out for your arrest. You're, you've got it settled with the law courts. So this is the word, but Christianity, especially New Testament writers, have appropriated this word from the law courts and used it in relationship to God. And most often when you see this word in the Bible, justification or righteousness, it's all related to this same word that we're talking about here. It's being in a right relationship with God so that God has no claim on you. God doesn't have a bench warrant for your arrest. God doesn't have, there's nothing on your permanent record anymore. When you are righteous, or when you have righteousness, and the way you get righteous is to be justified, those are all the same word, then you are now in a right relationship with God. And all the sins that you may have accumulated as a result of your confusion about the creature and the creator, those have all been wiped away somehow. The question is how. Paul is saying here that that record never gets wiped away by our ability to keep the law. As much as we would want to think it's so, that's our kind of our natural default human setting. We think that we earn everything we get. That's, and if we didn't think that way, we would starve to death, right? We just, if we didn't have to work for what we got, we wouldn't think this way. But we have to work for everything that we have. If you don't work, you won't eat. Even the scriptures say that. If you don't work, you won't eat. That's a human reality but it's not a spiritual reality. And that's what makes it so difficult for us is we're always putting this human system of earning things into the spiritual realm and thinking it'll work there. It won't. This is what Paul says over and over again in Romans and Galatians. It doesn't transfer. In the spiritual realm, you don't earn by doing. You don't earn by keeping the law. Righteousness does not come to you because you have honored your parents. It doesn't come to you because you've kept the Ten Commandments. It doesn't come to you because you've been faithful to your spouse. Righteousness doesn't come to you because of that. Righteousness, that right relationship to God, only comes about because you have faith that Jesus has done something for you. And in particular, that thing is that he has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He has indeed kept the law perfectly himself. And then he has gone and been sacrificed Take a look at verse 25. This is what it reads. God presented him, Jesus, 
as a sacrifice of atonement. And if you're reading in the NIV, there's a text note down there, which you could read as, or as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. But let's leave it as atonement. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. I want to draw your attention to that word atonement. There's a lot of ink on this word atonement. The word in Greek there is ilasterion. It's only used here in the Bible and also once in the book of Hebrews. So Paul, who probably didn't write Hebrews, only uses this word once in all of his writings. That word, ilasterion, is the same word that's used in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, to describe the lid of the ark. Isn't that interesting? It's very unusual word choice for Paul right here, but a very telling one too. Paul is saying, God made Jesus like the lid of the ark. This works in two ways at least. One is that Jesus became that place where God met humanity. Doesn't that make sense? Because that's how the lid of the ark functioned before. God would come down and sit there and Aaron and Moses would come to him and meet God in that place. So Jesus is now the lid of the ark. Like I said, the lid of the ark is more important than the box that it covers, even though what's inside the box is great. The golden jar of manna. Wow, that's good. But the lid is where God meets humanity. Jesus Christ is that lid. What else about that? How else does this work? Jesus Christ is this beautiful, spotless, unblemished, shiny, burnished, polished, lovely thing. This human perfection that God sent down into this world. And yet, Aaron comes to Jesus through a cloud of smoke and smears blood all over him. What does this remind us of? It's a powerful imagery. Paul is working at something really powerful here. Jesus is like the lid of the ark where God meets humanity. Jesus is like the lid of the ark where God was made bloody for the atonement, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. Again, I'm troubled by something so beautiful and shiny being made so bloody, so ugly. Uh, If we had a sort of a neat and tidy Christianity, we would never talk about blood. We would never talk about torture. We would never talk about all the things that Jesus endured for us. We would just say, well, the Romans slapped him on the wrist a little bit and then just said, be good. That didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. Jesus went to his death. He died a human death on the cross. His blood poured out and it washed away our sins. God had to shed blood so that forgiveness could come about. It was true in the Old Testament. It was true in the New Testament too. The difference is Jesus' sacrifice ended all other future sacrifices. It was once and for all because it had the power to cover all sins that had been committed in the past, in the present, and even into the future, sins that have not yet been committed by you and me. 
His sacrifice in that place and at that time continued to work throughout all ages and all times and in every place. And that's what's happening here. He is the lid of the ark. So let's read it again. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. God presented him as the mercy seat. God presented him as the lid of the ark through faith in his blood. And there's his blood. Faith in that blood that was smeared on the ark, that rolled out of Jesus, that flowed out of him in a life-giving stream. God did this to demonstrate his justice because he is truly angry about our sin, but it's justice found purchase in the blood of Christ and not in ours. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, but now past, present, and future sins are all covered by Jesus. We're out of time. Some of us have to go get our kids, but that's okay because this is as far as I wanted to go this morning. We have more to look at in Romans. The problem of the law is that we can never keep it. And even if we could keep it, 99% of the time, we still wouldn't be justified by it. The law is there to drive us to this mercy seat so that that blood that is smeared on it, that flows down from it, can wash us clean and give us a new life. There is no other way. There is no other path to righteousness. But when you're in that right relationship with God, all things then are possible for you. And it changes everything about you. It opens you up to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as we saw last week, we looked at Galatians 6. Against those fruits of the Spirit, there are no laws. We are then free to move out and do what God asks us to do in the world. We'll look at this more in some coming weeks too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus stands in for us at the place where God meets humanity. Help us to live in the new righteousness that we find through him every day. Amen.